Good morning. If you have your Bibles, go with me to Acts chapter 4. As we continue along this morning in the book of Acts, I want to uh, start by telling you a quick story. As many of you know, Rusty and I and our wives last week got the opportunity to go to Frisco, Texas, just north of Dallas, uh, for a biblical counseling conference uh, by an organization called CCEF, or Christian Counseling Education Foundation. Uh, it was a wonderful weekend. The topic was on the family. Lots of good biblical exposition, lots of just good biblically informed wisdom shared. Uh, super encouraged, but all the super cool spiritual stuff aside, uh, we got to eat some really good food. I want to start off by saying this. I did not eat any Tex-Mex while I was in Texas, and that was on purpose, okay? No Tex-Mex. You all know I don't like Tex-Mex. We did eat some good Texas food, but we ate, first of all, the first place we went to, Rusty suggested, was uh, this barbecue joint, or wanted barbecue. So I actually have some friends that live in Frisco and said, where's the best barbecue joint in Frisco? or in the Dallas area. I'm willing to drive about anywhere. We got some extra time tonight. Uh, we got there a day early. So they said this place called Lockhart's. Go get it. That's the best place in Dallas, in their opinion. It happened to have really good reviews on Yelp as well. So we journeyed 30 minutes to this place in Old Town Plano uh, to eat some barbecue. Now, you know I like to cook barbecue. Some of you have tasted my pulled pork. Uh, it's just pretty good. This place was really good. Uh, honestly, I didn't eat any of their pulled pork, but I had their brisket, and we had some smoked sausage, and some ribs. It was, it was just absolutely fantastic, but what you got to understand when it comes to barbecue is that heat makes a difference. Like, the temperature at which you cook the meat makes a big difference. So we go to this barbecue joint, and they cut my, like, I go up, and I order my meat at the counter, kind of like city barbecue, except a whole lot cooler. Uh, and, you know, they're cutting the meat, and he pulls out the big old, like, charred black brisket, and he's cutting slices off, and kind of puts in a little piece of paper, and then puts the next person's, you know, Rusty's ordering a piece of paper, and Jess's ordering a piece of paper, and Sarah's ordering a piece of paper, and then they bring it forward, and they put on this big, like, sheet of paper, and he goes, do you want any bread? And I'm like, want any bread? He's like, yeah, he's got a big loaf of bread, do you want any bread? Uh, sure. I mean, it's free, right? <laughs> Throw it on there. So he puts four or five slices of bread on there and then takes the paper and just rolls it up into one big ball. Like all the food, the bread, and a piece of in a big ball. And it's like this it's like the size of a basketball. And so it puts a piece of tape on it. Here you go. I'm like, what is this place? Like, that's weird. I don't want my food. Like, it's going to be all smashed, right? I'm like thinking in my mind. What is going on? Rusty posted a picture on Facebook of this big ball of food uh, in this big paper. So we, we take it to our seats after getting barbecue sauce, my jalapenos, and they have these pickles soaked in some sort of spicy chili sauce. It was weird, but good. So I take all that, we sit down, and I'm very careful, for you who like football, this will ring well for you, I was very careful in Dallas, not to get anything on my Green Bay Packers shirt, uh, particularly any of this barbecue sauce. Uh, I did get razzed a couple times for having my Packers shirt. If you don't watch football, that's okay. The Green Bay Packers just beat Dallas the week, the few days before that. So it was uh, on the way out, though, I have to tell you this. The server says to me, um, I like your shirt. Don't tell anybody. Here's what I want you to see. When it comes to barbecue, the heat's got to be just right. Meat responds differently to different temperatures. I don't want to bore you with details, but it takes the heat of room, of the room, like room temperature heat, to bring the internal temperature of meat for barbecuing to room temp. That way it cooks more evenly and it gets to the inside more quickly without cooking too quickly the outside. It takes 200 degrees to slowly cook 
the meat so that the smoke still has a chance to infiltrate it. It takes 300 degrees or plus to char the outside to get that nice charred flavor. And finally, the meat has to rest. The muscles can relax, or the meat has to rest so the muscles can relax and the juices can more can redistribute throughout the piece of meat. Uh, this barbecue joint had done this to, uh, I mean, in my opinion, to perfection. It was absolutely delicious. I'm like, what, why do I even have a smoker? But, well, I guess I, don't, I can't just go buy their meat. And Anyways, it was delicious. All things, listen, are stimulated by heat to some extent, and, and things respond differently to heat. The same is true of the human heart. The same is true of your heart and my heart. The same is true of us. We respond differently to heat. Now, heat comes in many different fashions, in many different forms. Sometimes it comes in relational heat. Sometimes it comes in pain or suffering. Sometimes it comes in emotional suffering. Sometimes it comes in other various ways. But heat is applied, and our hearts respond differently depending on the situation, particularly depending on what's inside our hearts. Thankfully, though, the Lord knows the right temperature in the heat and he knows the right times to apply that heat in our lives. You see, heat is applied, and then something comes out. With barbecue, if it's the right heat, and, and it's a good piece of meat, then good deliciousness comes out. For the heart, when heat is applied, whatever is good or bad in the heart will come out. It's fruit, or we also think of it as thorns that come out. God is gracious in doing this. He's, doing, he's gracious in applying heat, but He's gracious in that He's designed us in a way that when heat is applied to our lives, that something good or something bad comes out. It tells us something of what's going on inside. The reality is this, that sometimes what comes out is the sweetest, most wonderful reality of God's grace and working salvation in our lives. And other times, it's the most bitter and sour reality of lostness or the potential lostness of our hearts that is put on display in a response to heat. So here's the question I want to ask. How do you respond to heat? How did you respond to heat the last time heat was applied to your life. Listen, when God turns up the trials of suffering, what comes out? How do you respond? When relational heat gets turned up with your family or friends or coworkers, how do you respond? When one of your pastors turns up the heat, what initially boils from your heart? What comes out? Like thinking back to gospel fluency that we did over the summer. Like what, the, what thoughts initially come out, you need to take captive because they're telling you something. Or when your DNA leader turns up the heat, what comes out if you're in a DNA group? As John Pope preached last week about Christian protests and how we must be proclaiming the freedom of the resurrection, that this gospel is more important than any other proclamation. How did your heart respond last week? What came out? What boiled out? I particularly ask you to think about what came out before you had time to hush it, before you had time to squelch it, before you had time to justify it away. Like what came out immediately? Your elders are incredibly thankful for John's sermon last week. Let me ask you this. What kind of thorns come out? What kind of fruit is produced? In Acts chapters 1, 2, and 3, everything's going well. Everything's going well. The church is growing and growing and growing. The gospel's being preached, lives are being changed, people are being set free. They're being rescued from the plight of men. And we'll continue this on as we'll see as we work through the book of Acts. But now we get to chapter 4. And the church is now under a lot of heat. Because the church is moving out on mission. 
Because the church is, because God cares and loves His church. The heat is getting turned up. They're under persecution. Trials are coming. And what I want us to look at in this passage this morning is what fruit came out of these early believers during this initial moments of persecution. What's happening? Because I think what they're doing, how they're responding, is so instructive for us today. Let's begin in verse 23. We'll be to the end of chapter 4 by the time we're done. But let's begin in chapter 4, verse 23. All right, so they've just been persecuted, or they've just been released. And he says this, When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? And the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against His anointed. For truly in this city... There were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. First thing I want you to see is the fruit of a genuine believer is this, knowing God intentionally. Knowing God intentionally. I'm going to flesh this out, what I mean by this, of course, but knowing God intentionally. You made me think of it, knowing God deliberately. Knowing God purposefully. So here's the story, just to continue the narrative along for us. The saints here are about to ask for boldness in the face of trial, they're scared. If they're anxious, if they're worried, you don't ask for boldness unless you're tempted towards being a coward, unless you're afraid. They're scared. But I want you to notice something particular here. So clearly they're going to seek God for boldness, but how they do that is instructive for us. Look what happens. They're anxious, and where do they go? Where do they go in this passage? They go to the very characteristic of God that is antithetical to their struggle. They go to the very aspect of who God is that is the exact opposite of that which they're struggling with. They are out of control, but He is utterly in control. His sovereign. So he says, sovereign Lord. They are powerless, but he is all powerful. He created the heavens and the earth, they say. What are they doing? They're very intentionally and purposefully knowing God. They didn't just go to God and say, we need this. We need courage. We need strength. Certainly they ask for that, but where do they go? Instead, they go to God and first listen to what God had already said. What God had already said to them. God had revealed Himself as sovereign. He had revealed Himself as all-powerful. Here's the point I want to drive home. To know someone intentionally is a relationship. And a relationship with someone is always two ways. Listen, if all you ever do is talk and never listen, it's not a relationship. If all you ever do when you pray to God is talk about your needs, you don't have a relationship with Him. It involves listening. A relationship is two ways. 
You see, to know God is to be in a relationship with God, and a relationship requires listening. This is very instructive as the early church here is getting ready to go or is going through persecution. Yes, they ask God for boldness. They ask God, they express their needs to God, but they're also listening to God. I think Eugene Peterson is helpful. He says this, praying is not about talking to God. It's about answering God. Let me ask you this question. How did you first learn how to talk? How did you first learn how to talk? If you have children, how did they first learn how to talk? Someone talked to you. That's how you first learned how to talk. Someone talked to you. They said phrases and words. They explained what they meant. They told you stories. Stories about life. Stories about themselves. Stories about their family. Stories about creation. They talked. And as this person talked, you learned, you heard, and then you spoke words. But it was what? In response to the words that were spoken to you. So what happens here in this passage? The saints here start off by quoting Psalm 2. What are they doing? They, they say, the nations rage against your beloved son. The plot, they plot and succeed in killing him. However, only what you decree happens, God. And only what you desire will take place, God. And all this is according to your plan, God. What are they doing? What were they doing in this moment? Let me ask you a different question. What was God doing in this moment? God was healing their hearts through who He is. He was giving them courage. How? Not just zapping them with courage. He was giving them courage by who He is. You see, this is a relationship. A relationship requires communication. It goes both ways. They were deliberately, purposefully, intentionally knowing God. This is what it means to be in a relationship with God. It means to listen. How, how much of our lives is just spent talking and not listening? I mean, you can think about that just even in our relationships with other people. Right? How much of the time we just want to talk and be heard instead of to be quiet and listen? Or when we go to God, how often do we just want to go to God when we have something to say, all while ignoring what God's been saying for thousands of years? That's not a relationship. A relationship involves listening, purposefully knowing God involves listening. So let me ask you this. Do you know God relationally? Are you knowing God intentionally? Which by that I mean, do you know Him relationally? Listen, if all you ever do is pray to God about your needs, it's not a relationship. Let me ask you this question. Have you ever been talking to someone? You tell them your story or the latest update of your life and you're excited and they respond, oh, Hmm. And then they move on to tell you what they've been waiting to say the whole time. Anybody experienced that? That's how most of us pray. God has revealed himself to us in his word. Let me ask you this. I think many of us struggle with overcoming, we all struggle with coming, overcoming sin. I think the reason for many of us and why we struggle to overcome sin is probably because we're doing all the talking and not very much listening. Like you're telling God what your need is, what your sin is, what your struggle is. And I'm sure, honestly, I, I believe, I, I mean this honestly, you, you're probably doing that very well. But the question is, is, are you listening? So you say your need is, I fear man too much. I fear man too much. You've expressed that to God. The question is, is are you listening to what God says? God says, don't fear them. That's ludicrous. Fear me. 
I'm the one that has the power over your very soul. Struggle with anxiousness? Study, remember, meditate on God's faithfulness and control of the future and promise of good for His children until the anxiousness is melted away. What are you doing? You're listening to God. You're listening to God. But you know what this means, right? It means to know God deliberately means you have to know the Bible. It means you have to be in the Bible. To be listening to God, you have to be in the Scriptures. How, how do they, listen, someone at this point, like they're praying, right? Someone says, hey, there's Psalm 2. And this is what God says about himself in Psalm 2. We should listen to that. We should, we should meditate on that. We should think about that. We should grasp that. This makes a difference in the situation in which we're in. Because God's already spoken. Let's listen to him. Let's hear what he has said. Let's believe it. But someone had to know it. See, the fruit of a genuine, a genuine Christian is to be knowing God deliberately. Or to put it another way, to respond, to be actively responding to what he has said about himself and what he has said about you and what he has said about creation. Acts 4, verse 29. It says this, And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Second fruit of a genuine believer. Service unto God no matter what. Service unto God no matter what. Here's the story. Threats have been made upon their lives. Again, right? They're scared. They're worried. They're anxious. And then we see how they gospel their hearts, right? We see how they shepherd their hearts through this struggle. Now they ask God to grant them the ability to continue serving in His kingdom. But here's what I want you to notice as it was brought up in our house gathering this past week. Notice what they didn't pray for. I think this is more than an argument from silence. What they pray for and what they don't pray for is very instructive for us. They did not pray for circumstantial rescue. They didn't pray for that to be changed. They did not pray for their needs in the moment. What they pray for? Continued ability to serve God's plan. Continued pers- like perseverance to continue in servitude. That's what they prayed for. Now listen, it's certainly not wrong to pray for needs. See the Lord's Prayer, right? Give us this day our daily bread. Certainly, and, and other examples where that's not wrong. But we've got to be honest. How much of our prayer life and honestly, the rest of our life and subsequent actions are simply a pursuit of fulfilling our needs. We go to God because we have this perceived need, and, and, then, like, and then we wonder, listen, we wonder why our prayer life isn't dynamic. We wonder why God doesn't answer us, or why, it, like, it's probably because we're just doing a bunch of talking and not much listening. And the other part of it is because we got priorities mixed up in what we're praying for. Again, it's not wrong to pray for needs, but how much of it just honestly, just energy do we give to just simply our pursuit of what we think is our needs and what we want and what we should have? Listen, they had time and energy to serve God because they trusted God with their needs. They expressed God, we want to serve you. Help us do this. 
So they ask for boldness. They ask for courage to speak the gospel. In the face of death, don't miss it, they wanted to serve God no matter what. Listen, this is why trials are so helpful to Christians. This is why suffering is so helpful to us. Listen, it's easy to serve God when it fits your time schedule. It's easy to serve God when you don't have to give anything else up. It's easy to serve God by leading your spouse when they don't buck against you. It's easy to serve God when it fits your ideals. It's easy to serve God by leading your kids to serve when they don't throw a fit. These things are easy. But when these items and the heat get turned up, the question is this, how do you respond then? How do you respond in that moment then? Do you serve God no matter what? Or do you run the other way, justifying the new path of which you've chosen? Let's think about it this way. When your child, your spouse, your friend, co-worker, whatever it is, is in opposition to God's kingdom, right? You can describe the scenario just about however you want. What do you pray for first in that scenario? What do you pray for first? For them to change? For the heat to go away? Again, not, not that... Praying for them to change is wrong. That's what I'm saying. Or that the suffering would go, I'm not saying that that's wrong to do that. But I mean, honestly, like mom and dad, for example, do you pray for your child in that heated moment because you want them to love God supremely or because you just want a more convenient circumstance? Or same thing with your coworker. Like, you're trying to present the gospel and or, or gospel truths and who God is and trying to bring that to bear on your work scenario and, and, you, and it's not going well and there's some heat and some tension. And like, what's your prayer look like in that moment? Is it prayer to persevere in wisely, honestly, blamelessly loving Christ and modeling servitude? Or is it just for the circumstance to change and go away? What do you pray for first? I would encourage you to pray that God would give you the courage and boldness to speak the word and to lead through the battle. How do you respond when the heat gets turned up? Do you desire to serve God no matter what? Don't, don't miss it in this passage. They say in verse 27, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus. Your holy servant, Jesus. And then they say in verse 29, And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. Look, they were knowing God deliberately, and then they knew God in that process had came to serve. The only possible response was for them to serve. You want to know why often we don't do what is best for the people around us, coworkers, children, otherwise? It's not because we don't love them enough. I think for many of us, it's because we love them more than we love God. They've become idols to us. We care more about what they think than we do about what God thinks. And so we don't serve them well in that moment. We serve their flesh well, most likely, but we don't serve them well in that moment. It's because we want to be served. Because God's servitude to us apparently isn't enough. But God's service, at least in this moment, for these early believers was enough for them. Now, how do we serve God no matter what? Give us the courage to serve your kingdom, your plans, no matter what. Give us the boldness. Give us the courage in the face of death. Right? And we oftentimes have to pray to God to 
you know, to give us the courage to, to choose this over someone looking at us poorly. In the face of death, give us courage, God, to serve your kingdom. True Christians are not in relationship with God primarily to get their needs met. True Christians are, are in relationship with God primarily because as those who have been rescued, they are now given the opportunity to help rescue other people, to serve God's kingdom, to serve His plan. You remember the prodigal son? The story of the prodigal son? Look at his language and how it changes at the beginning. He goes from, give me my share to please make me a hired servant. You see how in our lives it looks oftentimes more like the former rather than the latter? God, give me my share. Circumstantial changes, whatever the case is, give me my share. What are they doing in this passage? God, make me, make us your servants. I mean, think about how this affects the way you serve your family, the way you serve your children, your coworkers. Think about the way this affects how you give of yourself in your church. Let's move on to verse 34. I'm going to skip a few verses. I'm going to come back and address more of these last few verses next week. But he says this, There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Fruit of a genuine believer is unity through generosity. Unity through generosity. It says they had everything in common. And they were generous people. So again, back to the story. These people have been changed by the good news of Christ. They begin telling everybody about this good news. There is freedom in the resurrection. And then they begin to face persecution. And look what happens. They commune with God, right? Remembering what He had said about Himself. Listening to God. In relationship with God. Talking to God. And now they, you see this communing with each other. Living in relationship with each other where there's this sacrificial generosity taking place. So think of it this way. They were living in unity with the Father, now living in unity with each other. But don't get lost in the details of this passage. We'll, we'll get lost a little bit in the details next week. But for this moment, don't get lost in the details. The passage isn't just about money, although it certainly includes money. Here's what you need to see. They were giving themselves away. They were giving themselves... Like, Think about how the scriptures talk about money, right? The, uh, money is, is uh, the root of all kinds of evil. Like Money like, has such a, an ability to reflect or to, to show what's going on inside of our hearts. And what was going on when it came to money, what was being revealed is that there was a generosity here. There was a desire for unity, a desire for caring. They were generous to the point of sacrificing for each other. They were giving of themselves. You see, a genuine believer will be growing in generosity with themselves. Giving of themselves, which includes money. I want to address for a moment. We tend to live, most of us, particularly uh, and hang with me for a second if you don't have any children uh, at this point. If you have kids, like there's this tension in us of like my family versus the church. Like how do I, how do, I do these two things together? Monday night this past week, I needed to care for someone through an unplanned visit. I had originally had planned to spend the whole evening with my children. Uh, having not seen them for the past week, being in Texas. But I needed to go. It was a good thing. When I got home, I spent a few moments sitting on the bed with my three oldest boys, helping them understand 
that they were a part of sacrificing in order to care for this other person. So what was, what was going on? I was drawing them in to generosity. Drawing them in to, hey, this isn't, this isn't daddy had to go do this over here and then family's over here, but we're a part of this together. Now this time it happened to look like you being at home and, and you over here, but there's times where daddy's at home and mommy's going. And we're all a part of this together. We're all part of being generous together. It should never be like your family versus the church. It should always be your family being led to be generous for the body. Listen, the issue isn't whether or not your family can or should be generous to the needs of the body. It's an issue of whether or not you're leading your family in that way. And that's true whether you're a single or whether you have children or not. How are we leading each other? How are we bringing about my sphere of care and influence to involve generosity to other people, particularly those in the body of Christ. So let me ask this question. Why do you, why do we struggle with generosity? Why? I mean, I think there's many reasons. I'm just going to pick one for right now. We see, we struggle with generosity when times are easy. (laughs) When times get tough, generosity becomes an even more distant thought. These people stood to lose everything and will, in many cases, lose everything. And yet they were generous. Timothy Keller was helpful on this point. I think certainly some of us are not generous because we're just simply greedy and materialistic. But I think at the root... Majority, if not all, of us are greedy because we are scared. Because we're fearful. We are greedy with our money because we're scared that God won't provide. Now the way He might provide is through better stewardship. So that you can be more generous. But we're fearful that God won't provide. Or we're greedy with our children. Because we are scared that God won't use your pushing and your heat for their good. Or we're greedy with our time because we're scared we won't get the things done we think are important. We're greedy with our stuff because we're scared it won't be there tomorrow. Somehow our life depends on it. Or maybe we're greedy with the gospel among our co-workers because we're scared to lose our jobs or to lose our reputation. Listen to me. When God is real to your heart, you don't look to these things for safety. Because you realize, right, there is no security in these things. There is no safety in these things. They're here today, they can be gone tomorrow. They're here this moment, they can be gone the next. There is no security in these things. Only God is safe and secure. Only this place, in Him, are we able to to walk and to live and to think and to feel without worry. But when God is not spiritually real to you, you hold on to your money, your time, your family, because you're scared. But when the Spirit makes God real to your heart, you give more of your money and more of your time and more of your resources away. Why? Because you understand that, first of all, my security is here, it's safe here, and these resources here are endless. I will have everything I need today, I'll have everything I need tomorrow, because it is secure and safe in him. You see, when the heat was applied, these genuine believers were knowing God deliberately, serving God no matter what, and then we see this extravagant generosity reflecting their understanding that they were safe 
in God. They were secure in God's sovereignty, right? Back to the earlier verses. God is sovereign over our needs. But let me, let me ask you this question. How in the world is this possible? I mean, when I look at my life, there are times that I don't want to serve God because the circumstances just don't, are just not what I want. There are times that I don't want to be generous. Like one of the things we did, I did this past year was I, in our budget, actually set aside a uh, fund for generosity with my money. And I look at that, and I'm like, and I just look back over this year, and I go, just pathetic. It's just pathetic. Knowing God deliberately, like how much time do I spend just wanting Him to listen? And I have no interest in listening to Him. He can, listen, you can read your Bible and not be listening. Whether that's just because you're skimming and glazing over the words so that you can check box, or you're just trying to find a key word or something that just makes you feel better for the moment. How in the world are we supposed to do this? How did they do this? Under such pressure, their lives. I mean, we have a hard time telling our spouse what faithfulness looks like. Or we have a hard time giving our children the right path of either this is what needs to happen or this is going to be the consequence. We have a hard time doing that. I mean, we have a hard time giving up $50. Shoot, I mean, how am I supposed to know God when sometimes we rarely crack our Bibles? How did this happen? What was, what was going on? What was so powerful during this time? I think there's a correlation between genuine Christianity and the presence of God. You see, the presence of God is the only explanation that explains this kind of fruit. The presence of God is the only thing that explains this kind of fruit. Verse 31, and when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. So here's what happens. They pray for continued service in God's kingdom amidst their persecution. And what takes place? The place is shaken. The place in which they stand is shaken, but what happens to them? Boldness. They're not shaken. That's the point. The building is shaken. The people are not shaken. So where does this, again, where does this kind of fruit come from? How is it even possible to produce this kind of fruit? Again, Pastor Timothy Keller was really helpful on this. Let me ask you this question. Where else in Scripture, if you did renovate us, that's our, our pre-sermon study stuff that goes out on Thursdays. If you did that, you should have walked through other instances of Scripture where the earth shakes. I want to do that very briefly with you. At Mount Sinai, right? The Israelites come to the mountain. And what's happening? The, the mountain is shaking. They couldn't even touch the mountain or else they would die. Another example we have is in Judges 5 when Deborah sings her famous song. And in the song she talks about the mountains quaked before the Lord. And then in Isaiah 6, he says that the thresholds shook. 
the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of the Lord. What's happening? What's happening? Listen, these images are meant to communicate something to us. Here's, here's, let me ask this question. Why would something shake? Why would the mountain shake? Here's why. When something of greater substance comes in contact with something of lesser substance, the thing of lesser substance shakes. Why? Because it cannot bear the weight of the thing with greater substance. Imagine this. Imagine if you and I were to walk out onto a pond with an inch of ice on top. Even the skinniest one in here. And you begin to kind of like this. I mean, for some of us, you'd take one step, right? And what would happen? You'd just wait. But maybe the, the, the skinniest one in here would walk out on the ice. And let's say they imagine they begin to jump just a little bit. What would you start to see? The ice would begin to what? It begin to crack. It begin to shatter. Why? Because there's something of substance coming in contact with something of much less substance. Here's the point. Whenever God comes down, He is of such glory and greatness that nothing on earth can bear it. Nothing. He comes down on Mount Sinai. What's happening? The mountain is quaking. Why? Because God's substance is of such greatness that the earth cannot handle it. The mountain is shaking. And what happens when things shake? They come apart. They are destroyed. They crumble to pieces. It's why Moses said, you cannot touch the mountain. Why? Because the people couldn't bear the weight of God's glory. They would be shaken to death. It's why Moses could not see God's face. It's why God had to turn and his backside pass from him because if Moses would have seen his face, the glory of God, the substance of God was so much greater than Moses that Moses would have been shaken to death because he could not bear the weight of God's glory in his presence. We are sinful and he is holy. His glory is too great for us. That's why Isaiah, if you go back to Isaiah 6, He says, woe to me. Why? I'm a man of unclean lips. God's holy. I am not. But then what's he say? He says, I am what? I am ruined. Depending on the translation, he even says, I am undone. What's he mean? He means I'm being shaken apart because my substance cannot bear the weight of God's substance. My glory cannot bear the weight of his glory. God, here's the question. How is it that that the presence of God comes down on these Christians and the earth is shaken, but they are not? The earth is shaken, but they are not. The presence comes down upon them. They receive the presence of God. But instead of being shaken apart, what happens? The exact opposite. They become bold and fearless and courageous. I think the answer comes in two other examples of the earth shaking. The first one is this, when Jesus dies. Matthew 27 says that the earth shook. Verse 51, And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. What happened? Something of God 
was coming down. God's presence was coming down in Matthew 27. That's why the earth was shaking. Something of greater substance coming upon something of lesser substance. Here's what was happening in Matthew 27. As Jesus goes to the cross, he says, it is finished. It is finished. (laughs) And the curtain is torn from two, torn in two, and the earth shook, the rocks split. What happened in that moment was the weight of God coming down in the form of his judgment and wrath on the person Jesus Christ and Jesus says it is finished and as this greater substance comes down on top of him the earth shakes it was divine justice coming down on Jesus all the punishment that we deserved was brought down on Jesus and he was shaken to pieces. Jesus was undone in that moment. Not because his lips were unclean from anything he had done, but because he was buried, shook him to pieces. The second shaking takes place in Matthew 28. Three days later, on Easter, there's another quake. Verse 1 and 2 of 28, And after the, now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake. Again, why? Why does the earth shake in these examples of the Scriptures? For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. Here we have the stone is rolled away. But here's what happens on Easter. This is why the earth shakes. Because death itself could not bear the weight of God's glory and God's presence. The Son of God goes into the grave. And death could not hold Him. It could not stand. It could not. It was of lesser substance than the substance of God's glory in the Son, Jesus Christ. That's what John Owen, the famous Puritan, says, calls the the death of death in the death of Christ. Why did death die? Because it could not hold, it could not stand under the weight of the glory of the Son. Timothy Keller calls it the, the great disintegrator was being disintegrated. The earth shook because death itself cracked under the weight of God's glory. Death itself. Why do you think they're fearless? Because they knew death had been destroyed. What do we have to fear? Listen, Jesus' holiness and might His righteousness, His grace, His love, His mercy, His kindness, and His justice, His forgiveness, His power, His wisdom, and His beauty was so weighty that the death grip of death crumbled under the weightiness of His awesome glory. It could not hold Him. What you see in Christ is you have the end of shaking for God's people in the shaking of Christ. Keller said this, Jesus Christ says to you and I in the gospel, 
I was shaken to pieces so that you could become unshakable. He says to you and I, I got what you deserved so that you can now know the Father's love. You are unshakable. Guilt and shame, I took that. It shouldn't bother you anymore. Anxiety over the future, I'm guaranteeing the future. Fear of man, you don't have to fear God, let alone fear man. Physical death, I crushed it. Heart suffering at the hands of another sinner, I'll use that for your good. In the gospel we see that God does this for His glory. And Christ did this for our good. You see, the fruit came out. These Christians became unshakable. The boldness and the courage in the face of death for us. We may not face death, but in the face of our persecutors, in the face of those who would stand against God's kingdom or face of our own flesh that wants to take control. They became unshakable because Jesus took the weight of God's wrath so that we can enjoy for all of eternity the weight of God's glory. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we do not deserve this. We don't deserve these things. We don't. We deserve to be shaken along with the mountain. We deserve to be shaken along with the building. We are people of unclean lips who should be undone in your presence. But your son Jesus was not. He was worthy. Not only that, but the scriptures say that He was the exact image of your glory. And yet, He humbles Himself, comes to the earth, bears our iniquities, our sins upon His back, carries them up the hill, and is crushed under the weight of your wrath. Why else do the scriptures say, it pleased you to crush your son? Because as, as the believers here understood, this was your plan. It was your plan. for us a people who otherwise would be your enemies. But for those who trust in the name and the work of your son Jesus as the one who died and paid for our sins. Father, for those people we now because of the blood of your son Jesus can enjoy the weightiness of your glory forever. Because Jesus took the wrath. Father, may we trust. May that give us boldness and strength and courage to serve no matter what. To serve God, to serve you, Father, no matter what. In our families, in our church, in our communities, for the poor, the oppressed. Would you give us the courage? And the courage comes at least in part from listening. Listening to what you've said about yourself, what you've said about your plans, and what you've done. God, give us the courage to be generous people. To not be fearful of tomorrow. 
knowing that you hold tomorrow in your hands. God, give us hearts that want to know you deliberately, live in relationship with you daily. I pray all these things in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.